What's up, everybody? Pastor Matt here. Thank you so much for checking into the podcast of Gospel Fellowship PCA. Hey, listen, what if I told you that there is a solid, biblical, doctrinally faithful, reformed church on a beautiful campus just a stone's throw north of Pittsburgh? Yeah, we don't have a Starbucks in the lobby. Sorry about that. We don't have a fog machine. We don't have an American Idol stage with laser lights shooting all around. But we do have the sweetest, kindest people in the world. We sing the Psalms and classic hymns of the faith. We preach the Bible chapter by chapter. We believe the whole thing's true. We love Jesus. We're on a mission to share the good news of the gospel with the world. Would you be interested in a church like that? Well, come check us out, Gospel Fellowship PCA in Valencia, Pennsylvania. Please feel free to visit our website at gospelfellowshippca.org and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Gospel Fellowship Presbyterian Church. All right, thank you so much. Here's today's message. Church, let's grab our Bibles. We're in Isaiah chapter 49 this morning. I hope you brought your Bible with you. Uh, if not, borrow one from the pew rack, but we're in Isaiah 49 and we're going to stand together as we read verses 8 and some following thereafter, we stand because God's word is holy, because it is infallible truth, inspired truth, the very word of the only great, true, and living God, the word inspired and inscripturated for us. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 8, listen now to the word. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor I have answered you, In a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out. To those who are in darkness, appear. And they shall feed along the ways on all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst Neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them, for he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them, and will make all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north, and from the west, and these from the land of Syene. Verse 13, sing for joy. O heavens, and exalts, O earth, break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted His people and will have compassion on His afflicted. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Your builders make haste. Your destroyers and those who laid you waste go out from you. Lift up your eyes around and see. They all gather. They come to you as I live, declares the Lord. You shall put them all on as an ornament, and you shall bind them on as a bride does. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. Amen. You may be seated. One of the questions that small children ask about God, and you can understand this, is uh, kids will sometimes ask this. They'll say, is God a man or a woman? And, And they ask that. It's a decent question because everybody they know around them fits into one of those two categories. Natural law suggests that every human being, even pets, 
They're either male or female, they're masculine or they're feminine, they're a man or a woman, a boy or a girl. And so kids will sometimes ask this question about God, and I think it's a fair question, just based on kids' minds. They'll say, is, is God a, a man or a woman? And, and I ask you, how would you answer that question this morning? Do you have a good answer ready to go? Well, uh, if you don't, here, here's the answer to that. God is technically speaking neither a man or a woman because God doesn't physically have a body. He doesn't have a biological, anatomical, physical reality as you and I do. And I think the Westminster Shorter Catechism question number four treats us as well as any place else. It says, what is God? And the answer is God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And so technically the answer is that God is a spirit, and he's not a man or a woman. But that doesn't necessarily finish up the question for us, does it? Because when we look through the scriptures, one of the things that we notice is that the preponderance of description of God comes to us with male terms, male images, male metaphors. For instance, in both the Greek and the Hebrew language, God is almost always described with masculine pronouns, he, him, and his. What do we do with that? And not only that, but God, when God describes himself and he has the divine, holy, infallible authority to reveal himself to us, and when God speaks of himself, he very often takes masculine terms such as father, king, lord. And not only that, but when Christ, the second person of the Trinity, became incarnate, he took on, didn't he? Obviously. The physical body in his incarnate state of a, of a man, a masculine human being, fully God and yet fully man. So what do we say about this? Well, at least we should say that God has the right to reveal himself to us, to our minds, in whatever terms, images, metaphors that he prefers to reveal himself. And yet today in our passage, I don't know if you noticed this, but we came to something very unusual in the scriptures. There are only a handful of places, maybe less than that even, just a few places in scripture in which God describes himself or reveals himself to us surprisingly in feminine imagery. And today in Isaiah chapter 49 verse 15, we have one of those rare and unique moments. So we're going to deal with that when we get there in just a moment. So put that on the back burner for a moment, if you will. But let's gather up some context here before we jump into that verse. The context, as we mentioned last week, is that God, through his prophet Isaiah, is speaking a word of comfort to the exiles, right? I've been saying this every week now, that Isaiah, who lived in the 700s BC, is speaking forward prophetically to that age of the exiles who suffered greatly in their time of tribulation in Babylon in the 500s. So Isaiah is speaking several decades in advance of his own time. And what he's doing in this latter portion of the book of Isaiah is he's trying to bring comfort to these poor, suffering, exilic Jews. And not only that, but as I, I mentioned several weeks ago now, we also see our second of the four servant songs in Isaiah chapter 49. You remember way back in chapter 42, we mentioned the fact that uh, Isaiah introduces a new literary genre called the ser a servant song 
in the latter portions of this book. These are songs that uh, portend a future servant to come that is going to bring redemption and deliverance to God's people Israel. There's a couple of hints that Israel herself might be the servant, but clearly in chapter 49, our text this morning, Israel can't be that great servant who is to come because in verse 5, one of the things it says here in chapter 49 is that the servant's duty is to bring Jacob and Israel back. And so we take this to be messianic language referring to the coming of Christ. Now here in our text, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to deal primarily with verses 13 through 16. So I want you to focus on those verses as we do our exposition this morning. And in verse 13, in our context here, this is important to frame up everything else I'm going to say after this. So bear with me for a moment. In verse 13, we have a most delightful and glorious word of comfort to the exiles. Everybody see that in your Bible? Because it says, Sing for joy, O heavens, exalt, O earth, break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has, look at it, comforted his people, and he will have compassion on his afflicted. So this is what we might call this the objective reality. God is promising and in fact giving to his people this word of comfort and compassion. And yet, because the exiles are all too human, just like us, and yet in the very next verse, what we see is some feeling of doubt, or we might say abandonment, or loneliness, or despondency, or desolation that the exiles are feeling despite the objective promises in verse 13. So in verse 13, God says, I will comfort you. I will have compassion on my afflicted. But look at what they say back in verse 14. But Zion says, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. Now, every single one of us in the room can relate to that feeling. You have felt in the past, perhaps are feeling even now or will feel one day that the Lord has abandoned you. And it won't be true, objectively, but you'll feel it. You'll feel spiritually weak. You will feel abandonments. You will feel the, what some theologians have called the dark night of the soul. When you reach out for God and you don't feel that he's there, and that's exactly what these suffering exiles are experiencing subjectively in verse 14. And so then what Isaiah does, or the Lord does through his prophet Isaiah is in verses 15, 16, and 17, Isaiah is going to then comfort these suffering exiles with a series of images, pictures, metaphors, that are, to be honest, somewhat startling and surprising. And I I think you'll feel that as we look through each one of these three images. But don't miss the point here. Don't miss the big E on the eye chart. God, through Isaiah, is going to give them three prophetic images in verses 15, 16, and 17 that have the primary purpose of comforting the exiles and reminding them of those objective reality promises in verse 13. And the first one is somewhat rare because here in verse what 15, we have one of the handful of places in the Bible, very rare, exceedingly rare, where God is described with some sort of feminine imagery as we introduced 
in the beginning of the sermon. So let's look at this first image of God's comforting promises to his people. Look at it in verse 15. He says through Isaiah, Can a woman forget her nursing child? That she should have no compassion on the son of her womb. Even these may forget, yet I, God says, will not forget you. Now this is surprising to me as a reader, and it should be somewhat surprising to you. Because God, throughout the whole of the scriptures, he will oftentimes describe himself as having what we might consider like a human relationship with believers, his people. And so think about this. God is called, as we already prayed together in the Lord's Prayer, our Father. A masculine term that no doubt connotes to us his power, his strength, his protection, his fatherly chastisement, yes, at times. And the Bible does sometimes call God our Father. And so we think of him as a father. But, but, that, but, but we're not done because sometimes... God is even described to us as a friend. Almost, I dare to even say it, almost like a peer-to-peer relationship. But but it's true. He's called our friend in passages like Exodus 33, Job 29, James 2, chapter 23, and when, uh, chapter 2, verse 23, and when the Bible describes God as a friend, we, we ought to be astonished by this. How can God befriend a sinner like me? It's, it's quite startling to think of this. And Christ, our Christ, our Savior, our Messiah, he is sometimes called in the Scriptures our brother. So for instance, Matthew 25, John 20, 17, Hebrews 2, 1. This is a term, of course, that, that suggests to us this incredibly deep identification in which God in Christ identifies with us, though we are sinners and he is not, yet he's come to redeem us. And so we have Father We have friend, we have brother, and yet here God describes himself as a mother. And who are you, by the way, in this picture? You are this helpless, utterly dependent, completely dependent human child suckling at the breast who can do nothing to defend or protect yourself for even a moment. Now the question is, why does God reveal himself through this metaphor in this place? Well, I I remember in my own life when my children were born. A memory that I'll never forget. In fact, I would never want to forget the days that my my children were born. I was there in the room when my children were born. Uh, had done the training. We had a midwife who was going to help us deliver on those occasions. And I remember uh, when, it, when it came to the moment that the child uh, was to be delivered from the womb, I, I got scared. I got pretty weak. In fact, even though I was, I, I was ready, ready to be there and to assist, I, I ended up trying to sit down. And I remember the midwife, she yelled at me. She said, now you get up here and you play the man. You're the father. You be brave. You get up here. And so I was like, okay, well, now I have to. And so with with both of my my first two children, I had the opportunity to literally lift them out of the womb. To be the first human being to hold my children. And there they are, wet and screaming and small and weak. And I'm holding this child and everything inside of me 
wanted to hold on for the rest of my life. But instinctively, rather than savoring that moment for myself, both times, I instinctively put the child on my wife's chest. Because I knew that she deserved it. She deserved that moment more than me. Because think about this. A baby in the womb shares the same blood, shares the same food, shares the same oxygen. There is no, track with this, there is no other human relationship that is exactly like a mother's relationship with her child. Right? Nothing like it. That's why Calvin, John Calvin, commenting on this text, listen to what Calvin says. Calvin says, by an appropriate, I'm quoting here, comparison, he, the Lord, shows how strong is his anxiety about his people comparing himself to a mother whose love toward her offspring is so strong and ardent as to leave far behind it a father's love. Did you hear what he just said there? Still quoting, thus he did not satisfy himself with proposing the example of a father, which on other occasions he very frequently employs, but in order to express his very strong affection, he chose to liken himself to a mother and calls them not merely children, but the fruit of the womb towards which there is usually a warmer affection. What amazing affection does a mother feel toward her offspring, which she cherishes in her bosom, suckles on her breast, and watches over with tender care, so that she passes sleepless nights, wears herself out by continued anxiety, and forgets herself, unquote. And so in this most glorious language. God describes his affection for the exiles, though they feel that they are forgotten in these 70 years of suffering in Babylon. Yet God says, how could I ever forget you? You're my children. You're my children. Now, I I happen to know some people very close to me, in fact, whose mothers were not necessarily the example of piety character, and leadership. Perhaps that is fitting for you. And that's why Isaiah appends this line in verse 15 to the image, even these may forget, yet I will never forget you. And so Isaiah is exactly right. Even mothers do sometimes fail as unique as that human relationship is between mother and child, mothers do sometimes fail. And yet God's promise here to the exiles is not that his love is like a mother, but that his love is greater than a mother. That's what he says. Uh, Hear some comfort from David in Psalm 2710, for my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. And so in this incredible metaphor, this image, God describes his love and affection for the exiles as exceeding even the dearest of human blood-borne relationships. That's the point of his use of this imagery in verse 15. Now let's move on to the second image here because this is just as unsettling uh, perhaps as the previous. In verse 15, he gives us another very vivid picture. Now, Think of this. What is he saying here? Look at verse 16. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. I, 
This is God speaking through Isaiah. Have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Now, again, another rare image in Scripture here. Something written on the very person of God. Where else do we see this? Well, one of the only other places that I find something like this, and maybe you could help me out, I see it in Revelation chapter 19 at this glorious return of Christ. It says this, that he has a name written on his forehead that no one knows but he himself. That's Revelation 19.12. And again, a few verses later, Revelation 19.16 says that he has a name on his thigh, a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So in this image at least, John, the, uh, the apocalyptic writer, describes the returning Christ as having his own name written on his forehead and on his thigh. And on his thigh it says, King of kings and Lord of lords. But here in Isaiah chapter 49 and verse 16, what is inscribed on the person as it were, remember God doesn't have a physical body, this is imagery here, What is engraved on his hands? You, believers. So what we have here is some kind of anthropomorphic language. That's the technical term, anthropomorphism, when we're describing God in the form of physical human anatomical likeness. Now, obviously, we we already quoted Westminster Shorter Catechism 4, God is spirit. He doesn't have a body, right? But whenever we see these things in Scripture, uh, we're encountering what is called an anthropomorphism. Anthropos, man, morphos, the form of. The Bible does use this with some frequency. Uh, For instance, the Psalms are constantly speaking of the eyes of the Lord, which is to say his omniscience. It's constantly referring to the ears of the Lord, which is that he, he hears and receives our prayers. Uh, The Bible will talk about the face of God, which means his holy presence. It will talk about the arm of the Lord, which bespeaks of his strength and his power. But here, what do we have is in this strange anthropomorphism, we have something engraved on his hands, and it's us. It's his people. Now, we, we still do this today, don't we? We will sometimes write something on our hands. Why do we do it? You ever done that? Well, we don't do it as much. We have phones now that we type our little notes into, and we have post-it notes and things like this. But I can remember a day where I used to write a lot of homework assignments on my hand. Did you ever do that? You got a little grocery list, and you're like, oh, don't forget the milk and the eggs. And so you take a pen, and you write a little note to yourself on your hands. And I've even seen middle schoolers do this, especially uh, middle schoolers who are in love, or so they think. They will very often write something about the person that they love on their hands. You ever see anyone do that before? I've seen it. And so sometimes we write things on our hands so that we don't forget them. And sometimes we write things on our hands because we can't stop thinking about that thing, such as the person in love. And the hands, of course, are always before our eyes, always before our face. They're the one part of our body that we're constantly looking at. And so the idea here in this anthropomorphic metaphor, this description, is that God could not possibly forget about you. Now remember what the exile said in verse 14. They said they felt forsaken and forgotten. God says, impossible. I would never forget you. 
And not only is it written on his hands, but actually the word here in the Hebrew was something stronger than just written with ink. The word here, look at your Bible, verse 16 is engraved. Which is to say, indelibly carved. It is scratched in. It is cut in. It is gouged in. You, cherished ones, beloved ones, the church of Christ, you are engraved, you are cut, you are gouged into the very hands of a God who cannot forget you. That's the idea. And when we begin thinking about this anthropomorphic language of the hands of God Himself, when we come, of course, to the New Testament, we see His hands of mercy where other than but in Christ. And I, I can't think it's any coincidence, I, I, I can't go there, that it's a coincidence that this language of engraved in His hands might even be suggestive to us of the cross. Because there, in the very hands of Christ, pierced and run through for you, do we see His highest and most glorious demonstration of His love for His people in the cross, right? We think, for instance, about doubting Thomas in John chapter 20. He wasn't there at the first post-resurrection appearance of Christ. The other disciples had seen him raised, but doubting Thomas missed this. And what did he say? He said, I'm not going to believe until I see the hands and I'm able to, uh, to evaluate the, the spear through his side. And then Christ shows up again in the upper room, John chapter 20. And what does Jesus say? Consider my hands. Here is you engraved Cut deeply upon my body for my love for you. And throughout all of the Gospels, we see Christ using those hands in most compassionate and caring of ways. It was his hands, of course, in which Christ held those children that he blessed. Remember those beautiful passages where Christ receives the children? And it was the hands of Christ that touched the eyes of the blind and restored sight to them. It was the the hands of Christ that touched the ears of the deaf. And it was the hand of Christ that reached down and raised up dead Jairus' daughter who had just recently deceased and he raises her back to life. And now when Doubting Thomas comes into the room, Christ, crucified and resurrected, says, Examine my hands. And you and I, Christian believer, we are to constantly take solace and comfort in the very hands of God. For behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Listen to John chapter 10, verse 27 to 29. Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. And so no one will snatch them out of my what? My hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands. So two startling images so far to comfort the exiles in their spiritual agony and sense of abandonment. And yet there is one more to be considered this morning. Look at the next verse where the walls of the city 
are spoken of as comforting to them. Look at the second half of verse 16 here. Your walls are continually before me. Your builders make haste. Your destroyers and those who laid you waste go out from you. Now this is weird. Why does, why does Isaiah switch so quickly from a woman who loves her child to pierced and engraved hands and now to the imagery of walls. What's happening? Why, why walls? That's kind of weird, right? What's going on there? Well, for the exiles, think back contextually and historically here, it was the walls of the city that failed them. Which is why they're in exile. It was the walls that were broken down by Nebuchadnezzar when he invaded the city of Jerusalem. Think about this. If if you are a city like Jerusalem and your chariots fail you, well, you have your archers. And if your archers fail you, well, you, you have your foot soldiers. And if your foot soldiers fail you in the battlefield, you can retreat behind the walls of your castle. And if your catapults and your trebuchets fail you, then your very last line of defense, the very last thing to bring you comfort and security and protection is what? The walls of the city itself. That's your last line. That's your only hope at this point. When everything else has failed, you have the walls of the city, but when that's breached, it's over. Let me go back with you really quickly here to 2 Kings chapter 25. You can stay in Isaiah 49 if you want, but I want you to listen to the failure of the walls of the city from 2 Kings chapter 25. It says this, In the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, that was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, a servant of the king of, the Babylon, of, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. And what did he do? He burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all of the houses of Jerusalem, every great house he burned down and all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard, they broke down the walls around Jerusalem. And the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon together with the rest of the multitude, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried into exile. It was the failure of the walls of the city that finally was the dam that broke that resulted in the exile. Many previous causes, of course, but that was the last moment. And now, Isaiah chapter 49, what is God promising to the exiles through the prophet Isaiah in verses 16 and 17? He is promising to them that there will be walls which cannot be breached. There is a wall that's greater than the wall, is the idea. Now, we can think of this both literally and figuratively. Literally, we might look ahead yet another couple of generations to the time of Nehemiah, who comes back from that Babylonian exile. And what does Nehemiah do? If you read through the book of Nehemiah, he has one galvanizing purpose, 
Nehemiah's, uh, his passion is to ensure that the walls of the city are being rebuilt. But I think that God is actually promising here something through Isaiah that's greater than that literal rebuilding of the walls in 445 B.C. God is here promising that there is a greater protective shield around his people than mere bricks and stones can ever provide. What is that protective barrier? It's his sovereign grace for his people. Psalm 46 says, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in times of trouble. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow. He shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God, he says. I will be exalted in the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. Get this. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And so, Christian believer, you will sometimes, no doubt, I know it, sometimes in your spiritual life, you will feel like verse 14 is true for you. You will feel as though the Lord has forsaken you. You will feel as though the Lord has forgotten you. And yet God has given through Isaiah three very powerful images of his sustaining grace and his love such that Verse 13 is actually your reality. Though you feel verse 14 subjectively, yet verse 13 is your grounding objective reality. The Lord has comforted his people and he will have compassion on his afflicted. And that gospel fellowship is the good news for us in the gospel on this Lord's Day morning. Hi everybody, my name is Rob and I am a deacon at Gospel Fellowship PCA. I'm also the sound engineer, the camera guy, and the podcast manager. Thank you so much for listening to today's message. Please come visit us in person. Gospel Fellowship is a Bible-believing church just north of Pittsburgh, and you can find us at gospelfellowshippca.org. See you next time.